A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online. And built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleon Assist. We've been off the air for almost a month now. Um, various things have been the reason for that. Um, partly some gut punches that have paused production. Um, partly poor scheduling on my part. Um, me just not doing my job properly. Apologies for that. I will endeavour to remedy this over the course of the coming weeks. Um, but in the process, it's become a rather special instalment. This is the 150,000th, I will say this again, the 150,000th download celebration. Yes, we hit the big 150K, massive thank you. Oh, applause around the room from people. This is very, well, applause around the room from some people. Others are being less generous, but we, we shall uh, leave, the, leave those people unnamed um, for this one. Obviously, a massive thank you to everybody who bothers to tune in still. Um, I think it's more than two years now since we started this this journey and who kind of kept spreading the word because the momentum does kind of snowball. And it's fantastic to think that, you know, not so long ago, I was thrilled skinny at 100K. Um, so here's to maybe the next 150. Who, who knows? Um, but we shall see. So we're going to have a little bit of a party. But it got me thinking, if you have a party, you need appropriate party music, do you not? Which therefore leads you to question, who's the best musician from this period? I just throw that question out there. We could argue until late into the night. I think my guests will be mightily relieved to hear that we probably won't be arguing late into the night. This isn't intended to be another four hour odyssey. Nonetheless, we have some fantastic, some of my favourites uh, down um, in the Napoleonicist bunker tonight to argue with drinks. Some of us are either on the non-alcoholic or alcoholic varieties of various spirits um, to argue who was the greatest musician of this period. I think I know who the winner is already, but it's, it's going to be a pretty vicious fight. So who have I got with me? Well, first up, we have a newbie, actually, to the Napoleonicist guest family. 
Tansy Robson. You will know Tansy from a brilliant and often hilarious Twitter feed. She does like on occasion to go after people who think they know economic history and actually know the square root of Jack about economic history. And she takes them apart in rather amusing fashion. Tansy, welcome to the Napoleonicist. How are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Busy day, but yeah. And I'm, I'm the one on the gym at the moment, so it should get interesting. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with being on the gym. I'm on the non-alcoholic gym. If I could be on the alcoholic variety, I would be joining you. It's been that kind of a week. We also have Jackie Writer. Jackie, have you managed to um, exercise the, the, the ghost of Poppin? By exercise, I don't mean like take him out for a walk and tire him out <laughs> so he you know, goes to sleep for an hour whilst you record. I mean like get rid of the, the guy so he's not bleating in your ear. No. <laughs> to put it bluntly. <laughs> That is a pity, um, but it doesn't surprise me. I do worry for you that when you finish the book, he's still going to be bleating in your ear and you're never going to be rid of the guy. Um, but I'm worried but about that also. <laughs> that's, that's something for another time. Um, folks, you know Jackie, she's brilliant. Go buy the book. Seriously, go buy the book. Um, Late Lord Chatham. It's sublime. You're going to love it. Um, and around the room, there are nods of approval, not least from... My favourite owner of a ponytail, Josh Proven, Master of Ventures in Historyland, who earlier treated us all to a rather smoking image of himself looking, un, I was going to say uncharacteristically dashing and then sort of caught myself midway through saying it, realising how unkind that sounds, and then completely screwed myself by then saying what was in my head. This is appalling presenting. I've managed to insult one of my guests but he is the nicest person that I happen to know. Um, apologies to others in the room. Um, so I'm, I'm sure he will forgive me. Josh, really good to see you, buddy. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing very well. I'm uh, speechless with all the flattery from this five-year-old photograph or something like that. <laughs> Did not expect this. <laughs> well, you certainly set one podcast host a fluster this evening. And last, but by no means least, we have Rachel Stark. Again, you'll know Rachel from a number of her contributions on this show. Brilliant on Twitter, particularly when it comes to the Napoleonic Marshals. We really need to sit down and have conversations about various marshals. Um, I think it frankly needs to be a mini series, if I'm being honest with you. Um, there you go, folks. You heard it here first. Um, Rachel hasn't actually agreed to this yet, so we might need to kind of like wait on the proper announcement, but a mini series on Marshall's incoming at some point in the not very distant future. Rachel, welcome back. How are you doing? Have you recovered good, from the Rona? You. I have, yes. Good, I'm glad. So that was a lengthy um, and tortuous introduction in which I managed to be rude to my guests. Nothing new there. Um, we are recording this on the 13th of July and we have had some poignant, it's important to say, but also kind of... I don't know if ex exciting is quite the right word, but certainly something in that vein. Um, breaking news coming out of Belgium this afternoon. The fantastic folks at Waterloo Uncovered have made a really significant uh, discovery. They have been back out at Waterloo, um, digging in various locations, including around France as well, but they've continued their investigations at Mont-Saint-Jean Farm. Now, you may remember from previous episodes where I've interviewed some of the team that they found some amputated limbs the last time they were out there prior to the pandemic. 
They continue their excavations, they have found further amputated limbs, but significantly they have appeared to have found a body or at the very least a torso. Um, that investigation is ongoing. There's a lot that cannot be said. Um, there are certainly some rumors that are swirling, which I'm neither gonna confirm nor deny, but this is a significant find, not least because it's the second um, discovery, certainly in recent times, uh, of a body from the battle that, that has happened on, on the battlefield. Um, all kinds of issues uh, at Waterloo with the, the place being plundered um, to use the bones as bone fertilizer, a very sad and very gruesome tale. Um, I just wonder what folks' initial reactions are around the room, or even, you know, are, are there just kind of no reactions and, you know, okay, it's news, but, you know, the world keeps on turning. I'm, I'm going to, rather than pick on people, I'm just going to throw it open to the floor. Anyone want to kind of comment on that? Uh, ha happy to, happy to. Um, I've, uh, there's a lot of, I only just saw the news before we, we came on and was filled in by you uh, with more detail. Um, there's a lot of things that people will find very telling about where this was found. Um, as in, and, and the circumstances which is found and the things that were found around it, uh, indicating possibly that it's something to do with the main field hospital at Mont Saint-Jean Farm. Um, but what I always tend to do whenever news like this hits is, is generally um, from all the archaeologists I've ever met is, the, is to do less theorizing and concentrate on, on literally what is found at the second. The theories will, will spin out of control. Literally, they found bones in a place with things around it and analysis is going to come but we don't really know much about what they found yet, except that they have found a body on a battlefield. Any other initial reactions from people that folks would like to share? Rachel? Yeah, it's really interesting. I'll be interested to, once once the body can be um, further analysed, I'll be interested to see what they can tell us about how he died, if there's um, kind of concrete cause of death, et cetera, that they can narrow it down to. But, also very poignant news as well, because this was a human being whose remains are now obviously going to be carted around and, and analysed by all in sundry. So hopefully they'll be able to have a proper burial in, in the end. Absolutely. Um, folks will know from previous episodes that I recently set up the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity for exactly scenarios such as this. We knew that there would be more that were found in time. Um, I can't say much because this is very, very, it's the earliest of possible days. Um, the folks at Waterloo Uncovered know of the charity. They know we exist. They know why we're here. Um, we will support in any way that is deemed appropriate by all stakeholders. Obviously, we have our position, which is that we would absolutely favour reinterment in a manner that is appropriate. Um, there are different precedents that have been set at Waterloo itself. Memorial 1815 chose to display the individual that they found when they were um, digging the foundations for that. They had a, a process of decision-making that went into that. And um, as a one professional to another, I respect that decision, but the position of the charity is that we would strongly favor and support financially and, and logistically um, anything that that can be done to make 
burial easier, whether that means funding research, whether that means um, funding the, the supply of resin casts to um, act as a replacement to those remains so that the resin cast can then go on display and then the, the individual himself, or it could actually be herself for all we know at this stage, um, can be buried appropriately. We stand ready to do that. Um, and there will be more news from the Napoleonic Revolutionary Wargraves Charity in the coming hours, actually. That, that's not an exaggeration in the coming hours because we have finally received the accounts. So our website will go online in the very near future, as will our membership programme. We will also be opening up um, our conference ticket bookings. Um, some individuals in the room I know are either speaking at the conference or planning to attend, which is going to be fantastic. So folks, please do stay tuned to that at NRWG Charity. But can I urge you to go and look at the work of Waterloo Uncovered, a fantastic organisation that not only works on the archaeological, archaeological aspect, but uses that work to support veterans who have been uh, suffering either physically because of wounds or psychologically from the traumas of war and they use the archaeology as part of their rehabilitation program it goes far beyond just the physical fortnight that they're out there digging but an amazing organization that are well worth you taking the time to look into and support if you are able to anybody want to say anything further on that before we we move on Nope. Okay. Quiet around the room. I promised you a party. That was a very somber start to a party. I've never known a party quite start like that. Um, not the best of planning, but it was an important um, thing to, to comment on. So let's let's see if we can get in the party mood. Um, I'm going to declare a, a fully conscious bias this evening. I put the question to you, who's the greatest musician of the Napoleonic era? I have gone on the record as saying that the greatest musician of all time, not just of the Napoleon era, of all time, is Beethoven. There you go. I've said it. So we will address this bias straight off the bat. We will get it out the way. Uh, and Rachel, you're, you're my kindred spirit when it comes to championing Beethoven. So we're going to yes. do Beethoven first of all. Take it away. Okay, so yes, I am plumping for the maestro himself um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, for pure subjective bias. Um, if I had to listen to one piece of music for the rest of my life, it would be Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, um, hands down. Um, and, and secondly, because I think his life sort of straddles or kind of fits in with the Napoleonic period, um, pretty well it was a it was a very tumultuous period of throwing out the old way of doing things and, and bringing in the new which obviously Beethoven perfectly represents he was born in 1770 which makes him one year behind that sort of bumper crop of Napoleonic personalities in, in 1769 and he he died just a few years after Napoleon and I feel like he's that sort of perfect musical representation of a period when Europe certainly got turned upside down. And um, I, I think he sort of represents it more than, than any of the other artists we'll be discussing tonight. And, and thirdly, most importantly, the reason I'm suggesting Beethoven is that he fundamentally changed music forever for everyone. Um, as I say, it was, it was a time of 
throwing out the old ways and bringing in the new and he did that with everything um with his piano sonatas he he pushed the piano forte absolutely to its limits he sort of was experimenting with different uses of, of the pedals he threw out the fast slow fast movement and and restructured that um in preparation for tonight i was reading a few articles about the impact of of beethoven's sort of structural changes in music and i read a very interesting piece by classic fm that suggested that the reach of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata alone is impossible to overstate. Um, just it, from influencing John Lennon to you know, sleep studies, all these kind of various things, it is just a sort of mini phenomenon all of its own. And, and he did exactly the same with, with symphonies as well. So symphonies up until Beethoven came along averaged something around the half hour mark till along comes Eroica. And it's not so much that he ripped out the rule book, he ripped it up, set it on fire and threw it out the window. He just completely, you know, revolutionised the symphony with this just magnificent piece of, of auditory majesty, which was obviously, as, as most of us know, written for Napoleon. He, Beethoven was a great admirer of General slash First Consul Bonaparte, and it was apparently written at Bernadotte's suggestion. He had, in, had been speaking to Beethoven and had suggested that Beethoven might want to write something in, in Napoleon's honour, um, which obviously he did. The symphony was originally supposed to be called Bonaparte, and then Napoleon declared himself emperor. And Beethoven was in, in such a rage at Napoleon's imperialistic intentions that he scored his, you know, scored the name Bonaparte out of the page so violently that he actually tore the page clean through. And it was then dedicated to the memory of a great man. So he, he was very keen on Napoleon until Napoleon decided to make him an, an emperor. Um, and I also thought that that piece I was discussing about classic FM, I, there's an interesting thing in there that I hadn't really thought very much before when it came to Beethoven, despite the fact that I've just said Pastoral Symphony is my favourite piece of music ever. And it was, they argued that all the music that is so integral now to our viewing, you know, movie soundtracks and TV soundtracks and video games, etc., actually owes its origins to the Pastoral Symphony, because although programme music had, you know, been around long before Beethoven, the sort of richness of the imagery and the textures had, had never been as detailed as it was in the pastoral. You know, you've got the rolling thunderstorm come in and you've got the, the babbling brooks, etc. And it just fundamentally changed the relationship between music and storytelling forever. And so if you're kind of, you, you pause and you're kind of emotively reacting to the Schindler's List theme, or you're kind of feel that sort of sword and uplift when you listen to Jurassic Park, that all ultimately sort of finds its way back to Beethoven and the Pastoral Symphony. So I think that's really interesting in that he did change music forever and he's still changing music now because of how much we use music now to tell, tell stories. Um, so yeah, his transformative, transformative, you know, groundbreaking writing notwithstanding. The other thing, and this is just sheer bias, I, I just feel that the emotional magnitude of what Beethoven wrote just hit slightly different than than any other composer and I, I kind of feel that was best it was a summarized in a documentary I watched years and years ago so I'm paraphrasing it hideously but they said that other composers wrote music for the next gala 
you know, for next Saturday night, whatever, the next concert, Beethoven consciously wrote music for eternity. And I think the scale of what he wrote, when you compare it to other composers, that's that's clear. Um, he can just, he makes the orchestra weep sometimes the emotions he can he can put into it. And I think that's obviously reflected in the fact that he's the sort of archetype of the tortured genius. He was a deeply, deeply unhappy man for quite a lot of his life. Um, most of his personal relationships were disastrous. He was bad tempered. He was difficult. I've seen some um, journal articles suggest that he would have been what we'd now classify as neurodivergent. Um, but he certainly had very, very difficult interpersonal relationships um, with his family uh, more than anybody. And of course, famously, as, as he goes through his life, his, his hearing, which was, was never brilliant, pretty much completely leaves him. And so he's even more socially isolated than ever in a period that was, nobody's gonna call it disability friendly. And he takes all this sort of anguish and loneliness and anger and unhappiness and bitterness, and he just turns it into the most magnificent music. And it just makes me think of that episode of Doctor Who, when they take Vincent van Gogh to the National Gallery and they listen to Bill Nye's character um, discuss why Van Gogh's paintings still have sort of enduring appeal. And he talks about the fact that this tortured artist could take his pain and take his suffering and his loneliness and his depression and channel it into sort of sublime creation. And, and that kind of effectively is exactly what Beethoven did as well. Um, certainly when the, um, you read the papers that he left behind after his death, he certainly was very suicidal at one point in his life. Um, as I say, he was, he was lonely, he was isolated. And yet the work he produced, it is basically sublime. And I know that the period, the Napoleonic period, gets its fair share of the word genius bandied about, most famously, obviously, to Napoleon. But I've also seen it applied to Wellington, to Nelson, to Berthier, to Davout. But I almost think it's understatement to say that Beethoven was a genius. Because I think if you can compose something as utterly sublime as the Ninth Symphony, when you have almost no ability left to hear at all, when you are isolated, when you are depressed, when you are ill, for he, he didn't have good health at any point in his life, um, but as, as he got older, the, the worse it got, so he was, he was chronically ill, and he wrote that symphony, and for me that sort of transcends genius and borders very nearly on divinity, and I know I sound like I'm in a cult, but I, I can't overpraise the Ninth Symphony. So, um, and of course, famously, there's, there's, there's the story that he was conducting on its premiere night. He lost time because he couldn't hear the orchestra play. And as the symphony finished, he was still sort of gesticulating wildly. The crowd was giving him a standing ovation and were, were basically raising the roof. And he didn't hear until someone tapped him on the shoulder and physically turned him around. And then he saw the reaction that his work was getting. Um, yeah, I, I think genius is an understatement for Beethoven. And that's why I don't think anybody can touch him for greatest musician slash composer of the Napoleonic era. We will indulge cult Beethoven tonight. 
it shall be indulged. Um, I would argue that, and I did argue when I appeared on another show to, to make Beethoven's case that that moment when the crowd goes mental at the end of Ninth Symphony at, at its first um, performance, and he doesn't know until somebody physically turns him round. It's just one of the saddest moments that we know of um, in, in musical performance. It, I, I defy anybody not to kind of read about that and not be moved because it, it is a spectacular piece of music. It's, it's easily up there in my top three. Um, certainly it might even hit my number one uh, spot, quite frankly. Um, it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the range of it. Um, the fact that you don't need to speak a word of German to understand what it's all about. You don't need to understand what Freude means. You don't need to be able to translate a single word of it to absolutely get the essence of what it's about. And sure, plenty of musicians can convey emotion. That's, that's not in dispute. And we're going to talk about some masters of that art this evening. But just what, a, what an incredible piece of music. And, and as you'd say, you know, this is a man who is transformative to the, the art of composition at this time. He is literally at that point at which you transition from the high classical kind of nature of music towards the romantic. And Beethoven is part of that change. Um, and you can hear those trends follow him. He has that kind of musical, that audible legacy. Um, sure, he was the archetypal grumpy git uh, to judge by his portraits um, coming from somebody who is the modern archetypal grumpy git um, right here people around the room look skeptical you you haven't seen me on a bad day you haven't seen some of the emails i've sent to certain people in in recent days um i can neither confirm nor deny whether that's the reason that the charity has finally got its accounts and is about to function um moving swiftly on um I, I'm going to end with a bit of bony bashing. This is me. You know me. Um, hashtag sorry, not sorry. But what I I like people with principles in in life in, in and in history, um, and I will bash people for whether or not they stick to those principles. And that moment where he takes that dedication and almost rips the page in half in his fury as he scratches it out shows you the calibre of the man. This is somebody who was guided by some principles. There are things about his life that are ick. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but to, to be able to be that kind of committed to what you believe is right, that gets a nod from me. Um, and it is a, a fun tale to tell um, people who are fans of Napoleon that go, well, he was he was everything. He was, he was the revolution personified. You're kind of going, hmm, his contemporaries didn't think so. Go and read about a guy called Beethoven. Um, not that Beethoven is representative of every person during the period. I'm not saying that, all right? Um, I, I've talked too much at this point. I haven't fired any questions at you. So let me fire a question at you. Um, faults. What were his faults? Um, well, they were they were a lengthy list. Um, a lot of it was to do again with with his ability to 
relate to other people. I guess one thing he maybe did have in common with Napoleon is that he liked things done his way. He did not particularly enjoy being contradicted or having people um, sort of go, go against him. He um, probably the, the worst or the, the most distasteful thing about Beethoven's life was the relationship with his, um, you know, wanting to take over his, his nephew's life. His, his brother died and left um, Beethoven and his Beethoven sister-in-law as joint guardians of his nephew. Beethoven immediately sweeps in, wants to control his life, um, more or less isolates the sister-in-law, calls her a bad woman, takes her to court, etc., um, which doesn't make for particularly um, enjoyable reading. He, he really was a complete disaster at interpersonal relationships. Yeah, no arguments with me on that. Um, no doubt not helped by the fact that if you can't hear somebody, it's quite hard to get a read of them. Um, yeah, that's reflected you... in, in his correspondence as well. I can't remember the word, you know, the word in a right. I was just off the top of my head, but I read one of his letters actually this afternoon and it more or less says exactly that. You know, I, I can't hear what people are saying. Um, I don't know how to engage. I, I don't know how to respond to them. Yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a troubled soul um, and his, his job wasn't made any easier by by what he did. I mean, it's incredible the way in which he he managed to compose music. Uh, the trick that he used was basically vibration. Um, and this is probably the, the first musical fact that I learned way back when I was seven, starting out playing the violin, was that, it, I mean, Beethoven's technique was to take the legs off of his piano and then he could use the, the vibrations to almost kind of feel, literally feel the music um, through the, the vibrations it sent through. Um, and you can achieve a, a similar kind of thing actually with, with most instruments that have a kind of a resonating body. So for example, violin, which is the one that I know about, um, you can kind of place it against the side of your head and pluck the string and you will feel the, the resonance of the vibration, it will actually conduct straight through to your inner ear um, uh, and the bones in your ear. It's quite kind of bizarre and you will sort of not be able to hear it, but you can kind of sort of feel it. Um, it's, it's an odd sensation. I encourage people to kind of have a go with it and, and see, see what he's dealing with. Um, I suppose we have to stop the cult Beethoven, don't we? And, and let the others have a say. So let me throw it open to the room. Tansy, let's come to you first. Any comments, any questions on this? Not on this one. I mean, Not ironically, Beethoven is my um, is my favourite composer of all time, um, but he is not who I think is the greatest musician of his era. I'm liking the nuance there, um, and and that's very harmonious. Uh, let's let's see if that harmony continues. Um, he deliberately uses the um, the musical pun there. Um, there's no appreciation for that amongst my guests. They're all burying their heads in their hands thinking, what is this guy on about? Uh, Jackie, what about you? Well, I have absolutely uh, no um, arguments to make. Absolute genius. Um, the Ninth Symphony is definitely way up there in, in my list of uh, things to listen to, particularly when I'm feeling down. It's, it's a really nice lift. Um, Again, I, I'm going I'm, I'm to go with Tansy's air of mystery and say that I, I do have a, um, I, I'm, 
ever since I've been I've been quite young I've had arguments about who is the greatest musician I'm going to pitch mine later um spoiler it's not Beethoven um but <laughs> um I've not really got anything to, to comment um I, th I, th I think the no, I've got nothing. <laughs> I thought that was great. And your enthusiasm was, was really strong. And you've nearly convinced me. Nearly. <laughs> Josh, are you going to be a discordant? That's a musical pun, folks. Discordant. Uh, voice you, you, in this you, one. You can start a drinking game now. How many musical puns can Zach make? And in People will be bladdered by the next half hour. <laughs> uh, no. Um, Beethoven uh, needs almost no defense. Um, the last 200, 200, last 200 years or so, uh, it's all you hear about it's Beethoven, 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 almost to um, exhausting levels. Um, he is also, he, one of his great merits in this discussion is actually also that he is literally alive for the entire Napoleonic Wars um, and was known and interacted with a lot of its main players. Um, I have never been an, a massive admirer of him in terms of, like, uh, admirer is wrong, I do admire his genius and his, his, his music is beautiful. But I've never been a fan like many of you have since <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> Um, and my chap, who I will get to, I'll make my case for him. And as usual, it will be a Josh pitch because my ones never win because I, I'm ornery. Um, and choose people who just get smothered by the, the, just the, the immense popularity of all the others. But uh, I do have my reasons for thinking that we can look away from this shining star and perhaps see someone else. That's nicely said. I'm very sorry. I'm just going to reindulge Cult Beethoven one last time and make one more point, which is about application. And there's an ick side to this and there's a nice side to this. Because you write a piece of music, obviously you don't know how people in 100, 140, 150, 200 years time are going to utilise it and receive it. And we've seen um, lots of kind of insidious things being done with music. Beethoven was a prime example of that in Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Because the Nazis, they're all about German culture, Beethoven being from the German-speaking region of Central Europe, um, working particularly, um, he's born in Bonn from memory, um, then he's working in the Austrian court, I believe. I'm getting nods from Rachel, who's confirming that yeah. I'm not actually an idiot. He was offered a position with Jerome Bonaparte as well, but turned that down. Oh, good man. Good man. Um, no, no, that, I'm being facetious there in case anybody's wondering. The point is that he then gets taken and uses this kind of shining example of what the Germanic peoples can do by the Nazis because it fits with all their ideologies. What I particularly love is the way in which some utter, utter genius within the British propaganda service takes the first um, four notes of fifth symphony the ba -ba -ba -ba, and turns that into the opening um transmission of the bbc propaganda service that gets broadcast 
out across Europe every night. And they take the, the, the rhythm of that, the, the three rapid notes followed by the long one, and they turn that into the Morse code, which is V, V for victory. And so Beethoven not only gets championed by the Nazis, he actually becomes literally the musical pinup boy of the Allied war effort um, with the British um, broadcasting service using that every single night when they're, they're broadcasting to um, the Nazis, which, which I just think is wonderful, you know, taking that and, and turning it back on them. The other thing to say is that Ode to Joy, which is the last movement of um, Symphony Number no. 9, the, the one that we're talking about, um, it was actually used for the European National Anthem at one stage. So his music, Jackie's looking astonished by this. It, it is true, it's not anymore, um, but it was used for a time. Um, and, and so his music was literally used as a way of trying to unify Europe, which speaks to not only the power of it, its ability to continue to speak to our souls 200 years later, but its applicability, you know, and that way that you can understand it and understand the emotion and appreciate how that emotion can resonate with us today. That was fully cult Beethoven, and I'm really not sorry, but we do need to give others a fair hearing. You will get your fair hearings, I promise you. I'm not going to make you all come and do it within three minutes and then close off the episode. You're going to get your fair shots tonight. Tansy, I'm going to come to you next. No Panny. pressure to follow that one up. Yeah, Panny is the way that you've been... Um... Paggy. Oh, Paggy, sorry, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm going to shut up at this point because all I'm going to do is embarrass myself. Take it away. This is a good one. I, keep, I think I gave it too much publicity before the effect. Um, so my... my... Uh, greatest musician of the Napoleonic era is, um, I'm going to go for Paganini. Um, like I said, Beethoven is actually my favorite composer of all time, closely lined up against VNB Nation, but he is my favorite composer of all time. But that is not the same thing as being the greatest musician um, of the Napoleonic era. Paganini was, um, even by his own contemporaries, called the greatest musician that they had ever heard. In fact, his performances were so extraordinary and his ability on the violin so extraordinary that many people didn't believe it was actually possible, which is where the legends of him and the devil really started to um, originate from, none of which were true that we know of. In fact, the rumours used to irritate him, but he was, so, he was such a virtuoso. He was not just technically brilliant, um, and he would practice endlessly to make sure he was technically brilliant and he would never go and perform a concert until he was very sure he got it right. But then he could also improvise and he could also do extraordinary things on the violin on top of that technical brilliance, which I think moves him up the ranking. He was also regarded as one of the greatest musicians of his age by his own age. Um, so Schumann, Liszt, Schubert and the others went to see him perform and could not believe it. Um, Liszt, for example, said it could not be attributed to a human cause. Um, and Schumann and Schubert would say, would say, I heard the singing of angels and we shall not hear his like again. So contemporary composers as well could not believe what they were hearing. He also used techniques which hadn't been used either in decades or would never been used together or in centuries in some cases. Tuning his violin, uh, strings on his violin, a semitone higher, combining bowing and pits and combining bowing and staccato bowing and pizzicato, and also using his use of harmonics. So he would change 
the way that music was perceived. Contemporary composers would be hearing it and they actually changed the way that they viewed music. Um, he was also very popular with the, with the, with the, with the Napoleon's family. Uh, his eldest sister made him a um, chief violinist in her court and the captain of her guard but they did have a falling out when he wore his uniform on stage as she told him not to. He carried on wearing it, he enjoyed his performance and then he left and then he went and worked somewhere else. Um, he was so popular in his own age as the greatest musician of his era that he could double and triple the prices of his tickets and still get attendees at his performances. And he was also known as appealing to the penetrating to the lowest classes of the population. He was very popular among all levels of the population. Um, and regarded by as a god of the violin. Um, he could also, he also um, had a wonderful technique which I sympathized with, which may have biased me slightly. And that is he would, he would do his performances and he would make his compositions and they would be technically brilliant. And then you can sense him getting bored with them and just going completely off the rails to an extraordinary level of brilliance. When you listen to his caprices, they get more and more wild and they get more and more extraordinary when you're listening to them. So my argument is quite compact, um, which is that not only was he technically brilliant, to a standard that was beyond what most people could achieve of his era. He could also then stretch that, bend it and twist it and set it on fire, literally on fire, um, to the extent that people could not even believe it was possible and change what composers of his era thought that was possible to do with his music. He was a rebel. Um, he had a very harsh father who made him practice and would beat him if he didn't practice when he was a kid. Um, so his music itself was an active rebellion against what people thought was technically good and against the violin. He actually preferred playing the guitar. He would play beautiful lyrical music on the guitar, but when he turned into the violin, it would turn into a violent act of rebellion. And that is what made the music so extraordinary. Um, there, was a, there was a quote that we shall not hear his like again in his contemporary era, and we shall not hear his like again because none of us could hear him play and its compositions I think the shadows of what he was able to achieve. So even though other composers Mozart and Beethoven are technically brilliant and even though they did create very nice music that's lovely to listen to Paganini did literally move the gateposts the goalposts rather not the gateposts did move the goalposts of what was possible with music um, and what was achievable with music he was um, he played in the abstract he played me melodramatic music that people didn't believe was possible and that is why i think he is the greatest musician of his age as separate to the greatest composer of his age articulate compact compelling tansy nicely done that is, that is how you do a Napoleon assist debut. Thank you for that. Um, I, I'm almost tempted to kind of think of him as the Jimi Hendrix of the violin, you know? Um, does he ever have a, like a full on Hendrix burn the instrument kind of I, th I, I don't think intentionally. There was one time when he came out on stage, managed to trip over, um, then broke some strings on his violin and um, almost set fire to the music so kind of in a very in a very odd way but he was also a performer people could he was he would wave his arms around he did he'd do mad things with the violin he really was the Jimi Hendrix of his age he'd never break it he liked his violin too much but when he broke the string uh, rather than think I'm just going to go back get another string come back and then just do my performance he played music on three strings 
um, and just improvised as he went along and moved it along, which is a degree of um, competence that is just extraordinary. Um, and I don't think he gets much credit for that because we are so caught up with good compositions, good music, uh, technical brilliance, but we don't understand that the subtle influence that changing those, um, changing the goalposts is going to have on composition and music, the music of the early 19th century compared to the music of the late 19th century, I would hazard to say is attributed a lot to Paganini saying you don't have to follow that rule book, you can break it and do extraordinary things. He was, he was, he was, um, he was, he was a Renaissance man in, in his own age. I mean, I've been playing the violin for something like 23 years. I cannot emphasize enough how much having a fourth string is really bloody important in terms of actually producing the music that you want to, to be able to then, yes, it is technically possible to keep on playing because the, the thing works in kind of every fourth note then transfers over to a next string. Um, so it, it is possible to do that. I, I'm, apologies, there are cellists and violinists in the room who know this already. I'm, I'm not kind of directing this at you, but to our listeners. Um, so technically, yes, of course it is possible. You just shift position. But as you go higher up the string, so the positioning of your fingers has become more and more compact because there's less um, variate. The, 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 the pinch point is, is what produces the tone because it's the vibration of the string that, that generates the, the sound. And so as you get higher up the string, you have to bunch your fingers closer and closer together until they're practically on top of each other. And it's almost impossible to distinguish between a sharp and a flat for a particular note and so on. Um, the, the level of skill, yeah, people can do it, sure, it, it's a thing. Um, and breaking strings happens. But even like little things, like where you expect to get resistance from the bow because you're on a particular string and, and you don't expect to be able to move in a particular way. It just, that's, that's deeply impressive. Um, I, I like the comment from Liszt as well. You know, Franz Liszt, he knows his way around a piano, quite literally. Um, well, he was a huge inspiration to Liszt as well. And Liszt cited him as an inspiration um, that going along to his concerts and hearing it and going home and thinking I can do completely different things than what I thought I could do. Um, and that is the mark of him both as not just a really good musician in his own right, but changing the way that other composers viewed music. I think one of them said, I can't remember where the quote was from, but it's, I can find no base for this meteoric, meteoric column of flame and cloud. And that kind of summed up his performances which lifts him above good composers who did very good music that lasted. Um, he himself was a brilliant musician and that, that I think moves this, moves this conversation along. I think he's already won, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only person I would rather hear play a violin who isn't alive and able to play one today, um, above, uh, above Panini, I would have to say what I would give to hear Vivaldi play Summer live, the, the thunderstorm sequence. That would be just on another level. But yeah, apart from that, of the people that I'd want to hear, um, actually, I would quite like to hear Beethoven conduct Ninth Symphony. That's, that, that's a difficult one, actually. Now, now this has become a deep and philosophical um, question within me about who would I rather hear live from history I wasn't expecting to go down this rabbit hole we shall withdraw from this rabbit hole because we'll be here all night 
let me throw it open to the floor in the desperate hope that they can save the quality of my waffling. Uh, Jackie, anything you want to chip in on this? Well, um, you had me sold on tripped over broken strings and uh, set fire to his music. At that point, I was kind of, yes, this is my man. <laughs> this is my spirit violinist. Um, <laughs> he, sounds, he sounds quite amazing. I, I, I have to say, I, I do wish that we had, I frequently wish that we had photography from the period. Now I'm also going to wish that we had recordings um, because, as you say, we're never going to hear him play and sounds like it was amazing um and the violin is not an easy instrument to play <laughs> speaking as someone who has struggled for many years with it but um, we're going to expect you to follow in his footsteps jack sorry uh, we expect I, you to be the next <laughs> i think for that i had to find some genius lurking around somewhere and i just don't have it <laughs> enjoyment doesn't make up for it <laughs> It so, does yeah. occur to me we have three quarters of a string quartet in this chat. Um, no. Do we have... The answer is no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I, I didn't even extend the offer, you know. And I'm not even grade one, so go away. <laughs> <laughs> Mutiny in the ranks of my guests this evening. I, I don't play any instrument, really. I used hey, there's to, a very I, nice I, guitar behind you, Josh. Is that just for ornamental reasons? No, no, I do practice on it now and again, but I have, I can't, I don't, I can't read notes, um, and I rarely have, I rarely find the time to practice on it. But uh, I used to have a violin, and it was tragically stolen and never replaced. That's my excuse for not. I wanted to learn the violin very much when I was when I was younger, but it was stolen in a house robbery. I'm sorry, I feel a need to now form a group to go and exact vengeance for young Josh that he had his violin stolen from him. This this is I taught myself the British Grenadiers from 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 the from the ear. And I got to that point and um it they stole it. I'm also <laughs> loving the fact that you taught yourself of all the pieces of music you could teach yourself, you taught yourself the British Grenadiers. Of course is, is, you did. Is anyone else getting um, vibes from Flanders and Swan um, taking <laughs> the horn concerto? <laughs> <laughs> no offence, Josh. <laughs> I, 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 if, it's, if you can make a joke, a good joke, if you can get a joke out of anything I do, I applaud it. I'm, that's what I'm here for, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> I, also, I also think... I got to throw in that as as a, as a historical economist i want to point out that i've actually got um financial metrics to prove what i'm saying um in one performance he made um or in in a in a number of performances he made 158,000 francs and he became the nearest um the nearest a musician has come to a millionaire in the, in that century so as the economist my final nail that says that is why he's the greatest musician of his era is because well money money speaks he was nearly the first millionaire there you go. Actual in cold, hard cash. Proof. That's pretty emphatic and compelling. But, but money isn't everything. Oh, <laughs> Yes, but he had everything else as well. He had the skill, so he had the technical brilliance, he had the virtuosity, he had the popularity, he spoke to the people, he changed the, he changed the goalposts, he changed composition as we know it. Ladies and gentlemen, that improvise. is what is known as triggering. He was able to improvise um, and 
transform his own performances and also like i said in it, it part of me is very sympathetic to him because his music is an act of re rebellion it is furious it is angry it is an act of both glory and hatred in equal measure i think when you were saying that um, beethoven is almost divine there is that um, paganini was the opposite there is something gloriously diabolical about him we have so reached catholic in the room <laughs> we have reached the point where the host is no longer required uh, this is so within teaching this is the holy grail when you reach a point where your students no longer need you in the room because they're too busy having the discussions amongst themselves for you to need to have any input they're just bouncing off each other we've now reached a point where the podcaster is no longer needed in this discussion am i going to bow out no no chance because i'm enjoying this far too much Rachel, anything you want to say on Panini before we... I've lost the ability to speak even. Um, save me. Um, yeah, no, the, the Caprices are extraordinary pieces of music. They're probably my favourite of Paganini's works. And yeah, I, I take Tandy's point completely. The virtuosity is incredible. And I, yeah, to be, to be able to go on stage and have that mishap and break a string and keep playing I fully fully salute the guy because I have had an instrumental mishap it wasn't a string it was a crap mouthpiece and I just about had a coronary so fair play to the guy for for keeping playing it is incredible and I like the sophistication of this argument that means that we now have a genuine dilemma of do we judge people purely on the basis of their output or do we judge people on the basis of their performance um, which was kind of where I hoped we might go, just to be really awkward um, and, and pit my guests against each other. But now I, I really don't know who wins on this one. Um, and we're only halfway through. So let's just make the equation even harder to solve. Um, Josh, I'm going to go with you next. Sorry, Jackie, I know she's deeply is that disappointed. It, is that in terms of, of answering Tansy or...? No, that's in terms of you're doing your pitch. You're right. right. Okay. <clears throat> Um, so I, I would first of all like to ask the audience to take a pause for a second and allow their heartbeats to settle a little from the, the rousing adoration of Beethoven and the glamour of Paganini and the admiration of what you will feel undoubtedly when Jackie does her pitch. Um, and look away from the familiar concepts of what we think today of classical music, what we what we imagine that we, what we like about classical music. I think of a gentleman who many of uh, many of our, our listeners will undoubtedly be quite familiar with from a certain movie. This gentleman is uh, Luigi Boccherini, and he was a virtuoso cellist from Lucca, and admired by several European courts for his ability as a musician, uh, especially with the cello, actually. And this was especially, uh, this was especially the case with the uh, King of Prussia, who was an amateur cellist, who commissioned a great deal of work from Boccherini. And actually, when he was studying in Vienna, our chap, our chap Luigi, um, not Mario, no, no, no relation to Mario, um, was uh, was 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 even complimented by the likes of Gluck and Mozart for his ability with uh, with his instrument. Now he was also 
notable uh, as a as a musician for his for his thumb placement. Now this is somewhat akin to Paganini. One of the things that I was I would have picked out with Paganini was the fact he's so difficult to as for violinists to copy because of unusually long fingers, which allowed him a placement on the fingerboard that was unavailable to to normal human beings, and Boccherini. Uh, had a particularly specific thumb placement which allowed him to um, reach unexpected notes in his music like E flat and not to rely too much on open strings. Now, to give you a scale of what people think of Boccherini, I asked you to sort of quiet down a little, you know, take a moment and, and, and get, 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 into a, get into a calm place because there's not a lot of people who really know who he is. Um, he was, he died in 1805 for a start, which is how you can include him in this. Um, he actually knew Lucien Bonaparte. Uh, he actually was, uh, Lucien Bonaparte was one of, the, one of his patrons towards the end of his life, actually. And he, he died in circumstances that made it difficult for him to be remembered as in the pantheon of great artists and musicians. He is known today as being a, a, uh, a founder of, uh, of uh, chamber music and, uh, and a very critical person in the development of, as, as Zach was talking about there, the forming of uh, quartets, especially because he would place cellos in a much more prominent role as opposed to Hayden, who would put them in the back. Now, I bring up Hayden and his and the legacy of Boccherini because at the time Hayden uh, and Boccherini developed their styles separately, but they sound immensely similar for some reason. Some people found it spooky, and one Italian violinist nicknamed Boccherini Hayden's wife because of this similarity. But Boccherini, it was not an imitator of anybody, and. Although his name is actually mentioned by music, musical scholars as someone who sounds like Mozart or, or young Beethoven or Hayden, he is a very much an original mind. Um, he was, for my money, a critical, a critical component of the movement from Baroque to classical music. And he fills this gap in between the likes of, I suppose, Mozart, Mozart and Vivaldi and things like that, and Beethoven. And he does this as, um, as uh, the musicologists, uh, I'm trying to find his name in my notes here, uh, Joseph Fetti said uh, his, his works are so remarkable that one would be tempted to believe that he was that he was has ever known anything other than music uh, any, any other music but his own a compliment to his basic originality and that if you once you get to know and it is very strange I didn't know him until the movie Master and Commander came out but now you whenever I hear a piece of Boccherini, you immediately know who it is. There's not many artists, classically speaking, that 
you can do that with, especially the lesser known ones. And I mean, I'm just going to throw some, I'm just going to throw some, uh, some music at you right now. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to do the, any la-las or anything like that. But um, if you've ever heard a Boccherini that is not the absolutely beautiful uh, La Musica Noterna della Strada di Madrid, um, then you will almost certainly have heard the string quintet in E major, the minuet from that, which is actually one of the most often repeated pieces of classical mu music in the world. Um, you won't realize it until you hear it, but you will almost certainly have heard this piece of music. So look it up. Uh, he's also known among, in cellist circles as the as the the villain who composed the concerto in B flat, which is considered to be you you are a cellist if you can perform that. And many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One of the things I just like about him is that he's not as grand as Beethoven. It's not, it's, it's equally as polished a sound, as equally polished product, but he doesn't have the weight that Beethoven does. He doesn't have the awe that everybody assumes, that everybody ascribes to Beethoven. To put it simply, Boccherini for, for my, to me just makes me happy when I listen to his music. There's very few passages of his music that I've listened to that I that do, doesn't bring a slight smile to my face and you might say you know you might so, some might sneer that because he's basically easy listening you know what is he saying in his music but if you think about it a little deeper then you do actually find that he talks in his music in colors and tones and this is despite living a life that was shot through with tragedy Towards the end of his life, he was he was out of work, and he uh, his wife died very closely to when he died. Some of his children died very closely to when his wife died. It was very sad end for this poor guy. Um, but the music doesn't reflect that. It's almost as if he could escape into a happier place through it, and that also leads me to say that he. The music that he made is something that you can sit down with friends and chat to. You can you can eat to it, and you know not be overwhelmed by the sometimes frenetic quality, say, of Paganini, or just 
you have to stop and listen to Beethoven. You know, <laughs> he command Beethoven commands your attention, but Beethoven, uh, but uh, but Boccherini allows you to get on and do what you want to do, and and accentuate what you're doing. He's, so he doesn't have the grandeur of the theatre or the auditorium, because with Boccherini, you always know sort of where you are. It's very, it's quite intimate music as chamber music is supposed to be, and you can live your life to this music. And there are many re more reasons why I could I could go on rambling in this sort of discordant, unmusical fashion uh, about why this guy I think is a remarkable musician and composer from the Napoleonic era, who. Unlike, and I'm not trying to take shots here, unlike, except for Beethoven, unlike some of the others, would be within people's mental uh, repository to listen to through that era. And nor was he as challenging as Beethoven to accepted ideas of music and therefore probably quite popular in salons and whatnot. Um, this is why I think he deserves to be amongst the greatest, if not the greatest of the Napoleonic War period because because he was brilliant the conversation goes up and excuse me just ruined the punchline we're going to leave that in just because the spluttering kind of makes it funnier but what i was trying to say was the conversation goes up an octave there we go there's another crap pun everybody drink a shot um Tansy promptly does, uh, as does Jackie, although I'm not entirely sure Jackie's on the booze. I think she's just... Uh, it's yeah, either no, water not... or gin. I'll let you, I'll let you decide. Okay. Uh, Josh has taken a shot of coffee. I'm not sure that's quite the, the plan. It's red bush tea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Um, you rebel. <laughs> yeah, this, this is another sophisticated argument because it, again, speaks to a different facet of music, right? There is what can you stand in awe of from a compositional perspective uh, and what can touch your soul? What can you technically look at and just be blown away by um, when it comes to performance value, which is what, we, which we, what we've got with Paganini. Um, but Boccherini, so for folks who aren't familiar which bit specifically of um, Master and Commander we're talking about, because there is some bark in there as well, because the, of that um, kind of, little subtext of, of the plot where Maturian and Aubrey um, are playing uh, cello and violin respectively. Um, they throw in some Bach, but at the end, when um, they realize that they've been duped and the ship is changing course, not to go to Galapagos, but to um, follow the Acheron uh, and escort her home, that's the piece of music. And it jumps from kind of quite a, an upbeat staccato to then this um, lovely, cheerful, sprightly little melody that just kind of sings to then turn into this frenzied cross-chord, multi-stringed... I, I struggle to describe the, the nature of what you're doing with a violin bow as anything other than just a windmill. It's that there's there's no other way you can do it. You're you're just flinging your your bow around in circles, trying to get across all of these strings simultaneously. It's incredible. And you look at the street, the the <coughs> the sheet music, and it's just a mess. It's just notes everywhere. Um, you you might as well just 
take a blob of uh, or a, a, a pot of ink and upend it on your score sheet because you're trying to play everything simultaneously. <laughs> um, and that's incredible. Um, and also because of that, it has managed, Boccherini has managed to embed himself in popular culture, right? Because if you think Master and Commander and you know that film even remotely well, you instantly go to that scene because it, it's just, it, obviously the cinematography is very good, but the music absolutely fits the occasion. And I like this argument. I can't really um, dispute this idea that sometimes you, <laughs> you don't want Beethoven in your life. Sometimes you need something more placid. The occasion doesn't always demand Beethoven. Um, I, there is a counter argument to that, you know, is easy listening. Uh, I'm not sh quite sure I'd call Boccherini easy listening. He's better than that. Um, but if he's kind of further down the spectrum towards the easy listening, does that necessarily mean greatest and therefore relegate him to great? Well, this is always the challenge when you try and pluck somebody that is, is not widely recognized amongst the greatest, uh, the top five greatest or something like that. There are a lot of articles online that argue that he is underserved as a historical musician and that he deserves to be up there actually with the, the Haydens and the Mozarts and the people that you, that you know. Um, but whether that is the case, I believe it's the case. I think absolutely this is the case, nor do I think that easy listening needs to necessarily be frowned upon as something that is impossible to do. I would I would, I mean, I think one of the greatest challenges you could, challenges you could throw at Beethoven was say, can you be smaller? <laughs> I have visions of somebody turning around to Beethoven and just going, yeah, it, it's great. It's seriously, mate, it's fantastic. Can you just tone it down a bit? It's a bit loud. You know, it's a bit loud in like in like the parlor. Is all I'm saying. It's a bit much, you know. It's just 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 bring it in a bit. And I think if you'd said that to Beethoven, he'd have looked at you with an even more grumpy expression on his face. To be frank, I think I think all that would have happened is though those frowns, those frown lines in his forehead would have become even more entrenched. Um, probably throwing something at you. Well, well, there is that as well. Um, yeah, I. I like this one. I'm not sure if it wins. I, I got to hand it to you, Josh. You always willfully take the tough option, and I applaud you for that. You always deliberately kind of deal yourself out of these um, debates when it comes to the vote because you're going for uh, a different angle. You're going to make us think. Um, I I completely agree with you. I, I think less less well known than he should be, um, and I or at least people don't necessarily associate him. They don't associate the name in the same in the same level, um, but yeah, he he deserves his place as the pantheon certainly of the greats. Um, incredible musician, um, and the range and the energy that can come from it is shows that he's got that capacity to go do his Beethoven moment, right, um, or his Paganini moment, albeit for for cello. Um, so yeah, I like this one. I'm going to throw it open to the floor. Tansy, you're our resident cellist. I, I feel you have to lead on this. Yeah, I think you can use the term cellist in its loosest possible sense. I have a cello and I have tried on occasion to play it. Um, no, anyone who puts the cellos up 
front, sort of up front and center is 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 a, is a good guy. So I have no argument on that count. Um, but yes, no, he is he is a bit easy listening. He's beautiful to play, um, and it's beautiful to listen to. So we'll definitely agree on those counts. But yeah, no, anyone who biases cellos is good guy on my book. But also the comment of like it was, he was the transition from um, baroque to classical. But you know, if you ain't baroque, don't fix it. Sorry, had to get that in. Oh, very good, very good. I approve of this. See this this idea of um, bringing the musical puns is now infecting my guests. I'm taking that as vindication. I'm going to renew my my pun effort. Um, I I think you make an important point there that we haven't actually touched upon, which is sense of occasion when you are the performer, um, and you're looking at a historical piece of music and you're trying to recreate the sound. Um, and the, the classic melody from Beethoven's Ninth, is there a sense of achievement once you've mastered the notes themselves? I don't know, because playing that line or, or those, that sequence of lines is very much about what you can draw out of the instrument, as a lot of musical performance is. You, know, you, can, you can play a tune, but that doesn't make it a great performance. With Boccherini, if you've mastered the notes, that's, that's a massive achievement in itself, I feel, quite often. And, and that's perhaps something that we haven't really pondered on. Um, so thank you for that, Tansy. Jackie, I'm going to hand it over to you now. I have to confess, I, I don't know Boccherini at all. Um, <laughs> I'm going to put myself forward as a country bumpkin here. and. Um, um, so I'm going to have to look him up because uh, um, I, I, do, I, I do remember the scene, the master and commander. So it's not like I'm a complete um, Boccherini virgin, but um, I, <laughs> I couldn't name you any of his pieces. So I'm going to have to go and check him out because he sounds he sounds like he's well worth a listen. Um, and I am very fond of cello music. So uh, if, if that features quite highly, I'm going in. Um, I, I, I like the idea of having a someone who might get people interested in different kinds of music on these programs um because i mean I, th I, th I think that everyone else people will have heard about and probably be somewhat familiar with um but you know i'm coming away from here having learned about someone new and i think it's great <laughs> I'm, I'm very very glad about that and absolutely you you must look up Boccherini because even if you don't think he's as good as the people you I mean no one's going to unseat everybody's own favorite thing I and mean, it's not going to happen it's just not we're, we're all realists here but it, you he will enrich your your musical life and another thing I, I like about him is that whereas uh, say Beethoven is 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 very much ahead of his time that he's almost a romantic um this is an 18th century sound that you get with Boccherini. And so it's something that you can associate very, that's why I think it works so well in the movie actually, and why it suits so well that particular, you know, the Patrick O'Brien thing, is that this is, this is the sound, not only that you can live your life to, but pe many people in the 18th century live their life to. Vindication for Josh there. Goal achieved. I mean, fundamentally, Josh comes on here, taking one for the team in order to, you know, bring bring fresh perspectives to people. So I'm I'm delighted that we've got kind of confirmation that that's worked even within the group. Rachel, any comments on Boccherini before we move on to our final pitch? No, I agree. I'm actually really fond of Boccherini. I think Boccherini was the very first 
the string quintet in E major is the very first piece of classical music I ever heard. Um, because I don't, I don't really know everybody's ages, but if you watch Zap on TV in the 90s, um, Arte, the sort of caricature artist, he actually came on and drew to Bocherini's uh, string quintet. And that's the very first piece of classical music I think I ever heard. Um, but I think, yeah, I thought you expressed that really nicely. Um, it's, it's not music that necessarily evokes a particularly strong emotional reaction, but you're right in that it doesn't, you don't always have to. And I think if you're gonna sum up Bocherini, it's just, it's just pure elegance and it's so polished and it's so, you know, if Beethoven sort of stirs your soul, Bocherini's a sort of bam to it. And I've, yeah, and I really, yeah, the string quintet in C major as well. I think it's the sort of things that's, it's easy listening. I don't think it's to his detriment. I think sometimes you do just want music that makes you feel nice and Bocherini absolutely does. If people are wondering why we aren't including snippets, which would be the very, very, very obvious thing to do for this, there's a little thing called copyright law. Um, I can just about get away with um, the the few seconds of um, Vivaldi's Winter, which is what you hear at the start and end of um, every episode, because it's less than 12 seconds total, I believe, uh, which is within the bounds of what can be done under copyright. Um, if we were to play any of these, then frankly, we would have to play them ourselves. Um, and you heard Tansy's reaction when um, I even began to um, lead us towards uh, that that kind of concept, uh, which was basically <laughs> in the dustbin. I think, I mean, it, I'm very tempted because I, I want the audience, I'm pretty sure a lot of the audience will have heard the famous Boccherini um, without even knowing it. As you do with a lot of classical music, you'll suddenly find out who did it and be like, oh my goodness, that's who did that. But the one we're talking about, one I was talking about specifically was the one that goes la da 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 that one. It's on every easy I know it. I know that one. I'm definitely not a Bokarini virgin. Everyone who's seen Art Attack knows that one, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 like on all the top ten classical, you know, FM H old HMV collections. It's like <laughs> but you know nobody knows who did it that's not a bad singing voice you've got there josh um the, the reason <laughs> i haven't attempted to sing anything in any substantial way is because the last time i sang in any meaningful capacity was my violin exam for oh god what was it something like grade six and this was this was more than a decade and a half ago um and you have to sight sing in these exams which is just a bit ludicrous really because the idea that you know if you suddenly if you went in for a, a clarinet exam and somebody suddenly said here's a violin now play this piece of music you'd be told to to get real so this idea that as a violinist you're going to suddenly be able to bust out a tune from this piece of music that you've never been able to see um, is, is an absurdity and the reason that I am so bitter and twisted about the concept is because I had an absolute mental block in the course of this, and I couldn't get the um, the, the spacing right in the notes. Um, and the guy, after four attempts to sing this line, literally, the examiner literally threw his head back and just laughed. 
because I couldn't get the gap and I kept it was just embedded in my brain and I kept doing the same gap um so there you go that's my bitter bitter story it's understandable Zach it's understandable we, we feel for you uh singing would be the closest I could claim to have in any any in any sense on par with you or Jackie or Tansy uh, or I do write, does Rachel play an instrument as well? But I'm sure if you do, you play it better than I would. And singing, therefore, is the only thing I've got to stand in this room, really. <laughs> so I will now go off and have a bitter, angry cry. Uh, whilst Jackie, who is now in fits of laughter, uh, I don't know why I keep doing this to you, Jackie. Um, Jackie, we've left a big one till last, haven't we? You have. You've done me a big favour because um, I, I like to think he left the best till last um, and it's very appropriate um, even though he's the earliest um, on this list and he barely qualifies really because um, I'm going to talk about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart um, I'm pretty sure that some people are already wondering why no one's mentioned him much uh, that's because you saved the best till last um, I mean he died in 1791 so can you count him as being Napoleonic um, well, OK, we'll talk about a long Napoleonic period here on part of the long 18th century. But um, he really is appropriate to keep till last because um, he does qualify in my eyes because everyone we've been talking about here, maybe not Boccherini, well, probably Boccherini, I don't know, but everyone stands on his shoulders. Um, he is really the giant of 18th century music. Um, so I think there's definitely a case for saying he made a big mark from beyond the grave. Um, so I should start or continue by mentioning that I'm not a musical expert by any means. Um, I'm certainly not a Mozart expert. I spent quite a long time reading Wikipedia on him over the last couple of days. That's about my level of knowledge of his life. Um, I am, however, someone who enjoys listening to classical music um, and I have some musical expertise um, and I do know what I like. And uh, when I hear a Mozart piece, it feels right. Everything is perfect. Everything is beautiful. It hits the serotonin button in my brain so hard. <laughs> Um, and I'm really rubbish at describing musical character. Just ask my violin teacher. Um, you can't see my expressive hand waving over a podcast. So I'm just going to quote an article from Classical FM. Um, and this admittedly sounds a little bit like a blurb on a CD jacket, but it really does say it, say it all. Mozart's sparkling textures, unfailing structural clarity, and above all, his unstoppable flow of indelible melody, thrillingly combined, produced the very epitome of a classical composer. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I think anyone would wish to be described that way after their death. <laughs> um, I agree with that testimony wholeheartedly. Um, and Mozart really is everywhere. Um, he's routinely played to babies to help stimulate their mental development. Apparently it has no measurable effect, but I can't imagine the babies mind much. Um, and uh, I, th I think we were all very young when we first encountered his music. And I am going to mention Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I, I said I might not do it. I am going to mention it. Rachel has disappeared. I'm so sorry, Rachel. Um. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just going to apologize. I'm not actually interrupting you, Jackie, but I am interrupting you just to say huge commiserations to Rachel, who has had to be dealing with nursery rhymes for her little one. Um, and I, I can't recall what the latest uh, count was, but you were going through 50 renditions of the same tune i've now forgotten what that tune was yeah but... it was jingle bells <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> well, Mozart has nothing to do with Jingle Bells, but um, he, he, he did do some variations on the theme of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, which I think have fed into the modern version. So you can blame him for that. Um, Indeed, some people dismiss Mozart as being too simple. I can remember having a long argument with someone about this once. Um, I vehemently disagree. Um, I think that's his very genius, the way he's at once very accessible with eminently hummable tunes. And um, I personally have spent quite a long time with non Pew Andrei for the Marriage of Figaro stuck in my head. Um, it's also really complex and multi-layered. Um, if, if what you're taking away from Mozart is that he's just bouncy and shallow, you're not listening hard enough and you desperately need another go and maybe a good long sit down with one of his requiems. Um, but that's enough of my opinion, um, because there's no doubt, none whatsoever, that Mozart belongs somewhere at the top of the list of great composers. Um, if you do a search for top 10 composers on Google, he's either at number one or number two. I did find one where he was number four and I immediately had a stop in the corner. But um, um, according to one American classical music station in 2016, and I'm quoting, he sold more albums than Beyonce. Um, he's absolutely everywhere um, because he can play for um, everything, strings, piano, horn, clarinet, choir. If it existed in the late 18th century, he composed something for it. He composed in every form, opera, sonata, concerto, quartet, symphony, blah, blah, blah. We could be here for days. And he was extraordinarily prolific. Um, he died at the age of 35. Um, you know, that's very young from the perspective of me, uh, particularly. Um, he wrote at least 626 pieces of music, which averages out at between 20 and 21 a year. And unbelievably precocious. His first compositions were written down when he was four or five and he was already touring Europe because he was also an early child celebrity. Um, he wrote his first symphony at the age of eight and his first publicly performed opera at the age of 14. Um, and what sort of things did he write? Again, he wrote everything. He wrote happy stuff. You've heard Ina Klein and Nathalie Dick, I'm sure. He wrote sad stuff, piano concerto number 23. It's really quite, quite melancholy. He wrote love stuff. Um, I was listening uh, to something I never heard of yesterday, which is Al Desiro de Quitadora, which I can't pronounce, but it's really beautiful. Scary stuff. Don Giovanni, Act 2, Scene 5, and the ghost appears. It's terrifying. Um, and he gets dragged down to hell at the end. You know, it's actually properly scary. He wrote politically controversial stuff, The Marriage of Figaro, based on a play that was banned. He even wrote funny stuff. Um, and this is where I'm going to mention the piece that he wrote, which is actually called Lick My Arse, although its more formal name is Canon in B-flat major. Um, so you might say, sure, he wrote a lot, but that doesn't mean he was any good. But you see, that's just it. He was good. He was very good. <laughs> he wrote effortlessly. Um, apparently just transcribing pieces he heard in his brain. Uh, apparently he didn't even need to correct what he wrote. It just came out perfect first time. I'm going to say it again. Yeah. Um, if you've seen the movie Amadeus, and I really hope you have because it's one of my favourites, you might remember the scene where he's writing a piece of music where he's flicking a billiard ball idly around a billiard table. Um, apparently that, that's exactly the sort of thing he did. He was a pioneer. Um, his work on piano concertos has apparently influenced all, all that came after in the genre. And um, he traveled widely as a child, so he spoke 15 languages. I'm going to say it again, Git. Um, and uh, it incorporates, uh, so he incorporates all sorts of influence in his work. He's got Italian opera there, he's got French and German local traditions. Every, it's, it's multicultural, it's um, international, it's all there. And stylistically, I think he also 
kind of pushes the boundaries. He starts off quite Baroque and he does sound quite Baroque sometimes, but at other times he sounds really quite romantic. And, and there was one piece from the, um, um, oh, I can't remember, is it the, um, I can't remember the Italian name, it's um, the kidnap from the Seraglio or whatever it is. It actually sounded really 20th century. It's very discordant, um, very modern. Um, so, you know, he, he jumps around. He's not just simple. And some of his later work, I mean, notably the overture to Don Giovanni, would probably still have been cutting edge had it been, been released 30 years after he actually did release it. He actually wrote it in 1787. Um, and most importantly of all, uh, he had a strong influence on his contemporaries and successes. And this is coming back to where I started, saying that everyone stood on his shoulders. Um, he and Haydn worked together, which is possibly also why Haydn is somewhere near the top of my list of favourite composers. Rossini, influenced by Mozart. Um, Beethoven was also strongly influenced by him. Um, we've already heard about him, so I'm not going to say any more on that subject. Um, so Mozart was such a landmark figure in classical music that you really won't find much music written post-1791 that doesn't reference him in some way. Um, so that's where I'm going to leave you. Um, in fact, I'm going to leave you with uh, the last words of Frederick Chopin, which apparently were play Mozart in memory of me. Chopin, somebody else in you his way around a piano. Um, to put it mildly, Jackie, thank you for that. We have reached the crescendo. Everybody drink um, of our evening of discussions. Uh, <laughs> What I love is that everybody around the, the room has actually just downed what's left of their drink. I, I love podcasting sometimes. Um, yeah, the, in fact, I probably made more notes for your pitch than I did anybody else's. I'm not quite sure what that says of it, other than it's clearly made me think. Um, yeah, for those who don't understand the Baroque classical distinction, the, the basic, ultra basic way to think about it is that Baroque has lots of what we call ornamentation. So things like trills, um, slurs less so because you hear slurs all the time in, in classical music. Slur is when you merge one note into the next, uh, so you go straight from one to the other. Um, but trills being another uh, mordants as well, which are kind of like mini trills, they sort of wobble around the note. Um, the Baroque period was very much kind of focused around that and certain harmonies, whereas there are a different set of harmonies which were much more your kind of fifths and your octaves, which sound, they just sound nice. They're just, they're just the ooze as opposed to, that, that is a technical term right there. I'm a, I'm a musical lecturer now. It's a thing. Um, whereas in the Baroque period, you, you might hear things that are just a tiny bit more busy as well. I think it is, you know, so you know, like your harpsichord music, kind of much more Baroque and it kind of jiggling around all over the place, whereas classical much kind of calmer, I think. It's, it's like the difference between rowing through the wash of a cruise liner versus being on a lake. There we go. There's an apt rowing analogy in there somewhere um, that probably doesn't make the slightest bit of sense. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'll, I'll admit, yesterday when you posted in the chat about Lechmecht and dem Ars, um, I genuinely thought you were trolling us or that you'd somehow posted something bizarre in completely the wrong conversation. And this gave us a completely different angle on your personality. 
Um, and it turned out that no, you, you were just, you were being genuine about it. Um, the thing to admire about Mozart is that the talent comes from sheer hard work, right? Yes, we talk about child genius. Why was he a child genius? Because his dad forced him to practice hours and hours every day so that he was a virtuoso by the time he was like five. Um, but he, he absolutely had the talent. He, he was so embedded in, in what music was that he could famously listen to a piece of music once and then write the whole thing down. He's heard it once. And we're not talking, you know, like one melody with one line. We're talking full orchestral uh, and he can write down all of the different parts because it's just there. It's embedded in his skull. Um, he was prolific. That goes without saying. I'm glad that you made the point that being prolific isn't necessarily in itself a measure of greatness because you can be more subtle than that. Um, I also liked what you said about the Requiem um, because, yeah, in my opinion, that's that's really good Mozart. That's probably best Mozart for me. Um, I'm not as much of a fan of Mozart as I am of some others. Sorry, I'm just going to be up front. Um, call me a Philistine, if you will. That's, that's fine. I've had people say far worse about me. Um, and I think this is where it kind of comes down to personal choice, right? That if you, it depends what you want out of your music. And you're quite right. Mozart is beautiful. And you hit the nail on the head with everything is balanced. Um, and I think, and this is just me personally, and what appeals to me in music but the fact that Beethoven feels unbalanced and unstable in a lot of respects uh, as does funnily enough Vivaldi uh, and Four Seasons not uh, not spring which everybody just kind of does as a bore fest these days because it's so overdone but things like winter uh, which are unstable or summer um, the, the thunderstorm that's more what speaks to me which probably tells people far too much about my personality and somebody's probably psychoanalyzing me now thinking that I need to be locked up in a mental institution. You're probably not wrong. Um, but I, I completely take what you say that actually if you want is, is something much more harmonious, um, but as you say, not dull, not dull and not plain and not shallow by any stretch because there's a heck of a lot going on, um, then yeah, Mozart is your guy. Um, None of which is really an argument against what you've said, and, and none of it is a question. Um, not not a not more of a comment than a question, surely. I'm afraid that's 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 what I've just I've just been that person that I find so frustrating in conferences. Um, personal life, not brilliant though, was he? Not not particularly great when it came to money, in particular. Um, and I always find it very sad that we don't have a grave for Mozart because he's buried in a pauper's grave and we will never know where that, where that grave is. Apparently that's not true. Um, apparently it was simply a common grave, which meant not a grave belonging to someone from the aristocracy. So it was um, not a, an unusual burial ceremony. Um, although I don't think it was particularly, particularly grand fanfare or anything. <laughs> I mean, people seem to be rather divided over whether he actually had anyone turn up, um, which is, that is very sad. Um, but apparently the whole Porphyr's grave thing is mistranslation. But again, I'm not an expert, so someone might pop out and go, oh, for a moment. Um, interesting. I hope that's right, because then we've all come, I mean, there were looks of shock around the room. 
um, when you said that. I, I hope that's the case. Um, Me too. There's a, monument, there's a monument for him in the Viennese cemetery, isn't there? But they don't know conclusively mm. where, yeah. where he's buried. They know he's in that cemetery, but mm. th there's no sort of um, conclusive location. Yeah. No, I don't think they know where he's buried, which is quite, which is very sad in itself. So, Why yeah. did he die so young? Was he kind of spending too much time? He stopped, he stopped breathing and his heart stopped beating. Um, nobody knows Thank why. Um, it, it sounds like he had some kind of um, streptococcal um, issue. But I mean, that could, be, that, be, that could be caused by anything. That could just be caused by a complete collapse of the immune system. Um, he died of something. We'll go with that. It that, sounds nasty. It's yeah. a very deep and technical analysis. Thank you for that, Jackie. Uh, let me let me throw it out to the room. Any questions and comments on this one, Tansy? Um, well, I um, Jackie will hate me from this moment was probably, but I, Mozart is is one of the most technical, technically brilliant composers, um, and he is he's got is is superb technically, and he's got a he's got layers and layers and layers of complexity, and his music is incredibly good at enlisting the emotional response. But I think. Um, it's why I find it, I find it very hard to listen to. It's like listening to complex mathematics um, with an emotional edge. It, he's just very technically brilliant, but I kind of I kind of do what Paganini does, which is I want to get fed up halfway through and blow something up. <laughs> which I do constantly in my scripts. Like if I get to a point, then I'm like, no, I'm bored now. I want to, I want to blow something up. Um, He's, he's very, very good and he's very, very technically good. But I think it is that is entirely down to a personal taste. I mean, one of the reasons I like Beethoven is he takes the music, gets really good at it and then punches you in the between the eyes um, deliberately. And Paganini, you know, just just goes completely off the rails. And I think I think I, that's just a personality thing. It's um, so I agree with her on the every single word she said. But the reason I kind of wouldn't put him as my top is because he doesn't then go crazy and go yeah that sounds wrong doesn't it he just doesn't he doesn't rebel and go against it but he's he is very very good in his own right he's superb he is one of the best composers of all time see i think we're getting a, a sense now of why tansy was recently described by one of her colleagues as the bond girl of script writing for that ability to just come along and um love the idea of somebody being kicked in the face by a piece of musical composition um which is a nice way to start to wrap this this um this episode up josh what are your thoughts on mozart uh i'm a big fan of mozart um as you might have gathered from the way i pitched boccherini there were certain similarities in the way both jackie and i pitched ours um i i was very uh, you know, I, I was nodding along when she was talking about Hayden and 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 Gluck and things like that. And what's nice actually is that what what I what I had recognized when I was doing you know the notes for for my pitch was that Mozart, Gluck, Hayden, and Boccherini were essentially um, contemporaries of each other, um, and they had their own distinct styles. I was, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I'm blown away by, you know, the, the, the genius of, of Mozart and that he achieved so much. I mean, my guy was actually born before he was in 1743. And in his entire life, Boccherini apparently uh, did about over 600 works. Uh, he died in 1805. And 
if Mozart, and the Mozart essentially did the same in 30 years, maybe gives you an impression of why he died young, but <laughs> uh, there's no doubting that he deserves a, a, a huge place in anybody's appreciation of, of the sort of the movers and shakers of, of uh, classical music, really. Uh, I would absolutely place him high in, in my, any list I would make. I, I like, I'm sorry, I like him better than Beethoven. Um, <laughs> and I would place him above Paganini just because I feel like Paganini was paying his dues during the Napoleonic Wars um, rather than achieving greatness in them. He was great in the 19th century as a musician. Um, uh, and there's very little else to say about Beethoven. Uh, I don't have questions for Jackie about Mozart uh, because, well, I'm a fan. <laughs> I want you to do well, Jackie. <laughs> and so at the risk of, musical pun here, creating a coda and going back to where we started at the beginning, yeah, we, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel here now. Even I will acknowledge that. We're going to Rachel. Rachel, you're going to launch a, a last ditch defense of Beethoven against the onslaught that is actually Mozart's music isn't an onslaught. Tansy had it in a nutshell. You know, he, he doesn't come and, and kick you in the face. Um, and that's any, why any you should all remember. That's why you should all remember Boccherini because he's like a, a mess. He's like he's like every all the good stuff from all of this in a while. Josh, <laughs> you, Josh. You, you all need to listen to Don Giovanni again. I'm sorry if you're not talking about kicks in the face. Go listen to Don Giovanni again and come out unscathed. I dare you. There is silence around the room. Rachel, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. It's it's impossible to argue against Mozart. He is one of the foremost musical geniuses of all time and you, you are right it is very much Beethoven stood on his shoulders when he went to study with Haydn he was told you know go to Haydn and you will receive the spirit of Mozart from Haydn's hands and it was obviously had huge influence on, on him I'm slightly agog that anybody could call Mozart's music simple um me too but uh, that's kind of mind-boggling and I yeah, it's he, it's impossible to argue against him. Some of it, some of his pieces are sublime. I mean, the clarinet concerto is probably my favourite of his. It's just beautiful, and I think it's probably reflective that, that there, it's almost impossible to separate him and Beethoven by the fact that if you look at the Classic FM Hall of Fame, pretty much every year it's between the two of them as to who's got the most. Um, compositions listed and one year it's Mozart and one year it's Beethoven and it depends who's in vogue at the moment but um yeah you, you can't argue against Mozart I'm not that insane so it turns out there is no final encore everybody drink uh, good lord I've got enough left so. rock and roll <laughs> oh 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 dear, oh dear. We won't go around the room and do final mentions. I fear I have tested my guests' patience far too much already. But thank you all for tuning in. Um, I'll say I again. I'm going to throw in a final one, which is oh. to say, of all of those, mine is the only one who was so good that he himself said his own music had killed him. Just saying. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether or not that commends him if I'm being honest, Tansy. 
his own his the power of his own music the electricity that drove him um to perform like that did drive him so far that he said it's going to kill him and it did right <laughs> I, I, I can't i can't believe you're bringing paganini's death into a fight that involves mozart i'm sorry but i just can't <laughs> well, bring it in bring did you not in. have syphilis in the end no he had everything he was um, he was a mess even when he was a kid he was a mess he was bad, uh, um, bad health his whole life and but, he just but, died of Ill but, but but don't worry guys i'm gonna have him disqualified because he was like on the rise in the napoleonic wars rather than as the i run this show <laughs> i'm gonna I'm make an appeal i'm gonna no, make an appeal no, there is no appeal this is a dictatorship i am the napoleon of the napoleonicist and i'm not even sorry Hey, um, hey, this, hey, no, hey, hey, no, 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 this is an autocracy. I, I, I will silence you. I will mute your microphone. I have a relative I, who owns... Josh, I have was, literally was... muted your microphone. There is nothing <laughs> he, you can do. He was very he was very popular in his youth, and he, he stunned people when he was 19. And so he was, he, was, he was very popular when he was younger, and he was born in 1782, so he's well into the Napoleonic period. Again, See, no. Mozart, again, Mozart laughed at your popular when he was young <laughs> i know mine was dead and then pregnant was fine well i'll just sit back and be quiet yeah, one thing's pretty sure if you combine all four of the composers we've got a pretty cracking playlist that's going to suit virtually every mood and every occasion yep that's fair there is harmony back in the room we have reached our fifths and our octaves and i'm going to use that as a point at which to end this before we descend into anarchy yet again um <laughs> thank you all of you for tuning in just want to say once again a massive thank you to the listeners um this was a great way to celebrate 150,000 downloads it really was thank you for for joining me this evening i couldn't have had this discussion with a nicer more entertaining group of people folks follow these people on twitter it will enrich your lives i rarely have cause to say that about twitter but in this case it is true Josh, you are at Land of History, is that right? That is correct. Um, Bullock's Grain and uh, Good Madeira. Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, heavily emphasised. Um, that joke is now very old. I'm not sorry for repeating it. I need, I need um, to write another book so you can make, fun, make another title. Yeah, this is true. Um, people go by it from Hellion. Jackie, you are at Late Lord Chatham. Correct. Um, and... The Late Lord, which is the life of Second Earl Chatham, is available, folks. Uh, forgive me, Jackie, I forget who published it. It's a pen and sword. Pen and sword, people, go by the book, you have been told. Tansy, um, Artemis Sapphire? Is that yeah, your word? Artemis Sapphire, yeah. Artemis Sapphire. See, I do know people's um, Twitter handles, I promise. And, 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 all, and also, yes, if any producers listening, the screenplay is awesome. Please drop me a line. Yep. <laughs> So now you know where to go to. Um, you need the Bond girl of script writing in, in your arsenal of people that you can deploy to writing stuff. Um, so there you go. You have been told. Let's be honest. No, no production people are listening to this show because there's no quality in the, the production. Um, and last but by no means least, Rachel, you are at Bookish Rachel. Is that right? Yeah. Bookish underscore Rachel. Yeah. Bookish underscore Rachel. Folks, there is an A-E in the last part of Rachel, remember that, otherwise you'll probably end up following the wrong person. Um, do we have a book on the Marshalls incoming sometime soon? Please say yes. One day if I ever find time, I would love to, yeah. 
Okay, so we could, we can hold on to that thought for another day. Um, folks, thank you all for joining me this evening. Thank you, listeners. Take care. The Napoleon Assist will return very soon. Hello again, folks. Yes, I know the usual ever so slightly tedious begging letter. As always, please remember to like and subscribe. Little things that make a colossal difference. It's the algorithm that drives how widely these episodes are spread and your inclination to like the posts on social media, Facebook, Twitter and so on. That willingness to hit the share button, to take that link and copy it into your own social media feeds, those are the kinds of things that make a colossal difference in terms of wider reach and bringing in new people who can enjoy this show. And if you're enjoying it, then it would be great for other people to share that enjoyment with you. So please do take the time to spread the word. I'm conscious that a number of people who, with the best one in the world I don't even know, are being very kind and doing that kind of thing. If you're one of those, then believe me, heartfelt thanks to you. Um, those of you who aren't, if you can spare the time, please do. It you know it takes a, a few seconds and a little bit of electricity. It makes a massive difference. Um, but the most important thing, there's a subscribe button. Just whack that, and then you'll be able to get live updates whenever the next episode goes out. As you know, this is a show that endeavours to run on a shoestring budget. So if you are willing and able to contribute, either as a one-off. Um, or as something kind of more regular, please know that it makes a massive difference. All the funds get reinvested. So none of this is about lining my own pocket. It's all about how can we kind of build the show and uh, look to provide fresh content, um, but also more diverse content. So the big thing that I'm looking at for the future is how to launch a YouTube channel successfully and considering some kind of live stream capability and what that might or might not look like. No promises at this stage. The other thing I would say is that if you want more content, if you're able to um, uh, contribute to the, the Patreon scheme, it does help in terms of trying to reach that goal of ultimately going weekly. That is what I would like to do. Have one of these go out every single week, 52 in a year. But these are huge investments of time, even when an episode isn't four hours long, like some of the ones you've had recently. It, it takes a, a good four hours per episode absolute minimum probably close to six in terms of editing and, and preparation and recording time and so on and so forth obviously i am sitting here playing the world's smallest violin but if you enjoy the show and if you would like more content please do consider whether or not you're able to contribute i know times are hard um there are links in the description go to patreon if you're considering um something regular on a, on a monthly basis the idea with that is that there are different tiers. They start at £1 a month, um, go up all the way up actually to uh, £25 a month for those who are insanely generous. Um, and you get different perks within each tier. So you can get shout-outs within episodes. You can get one-to-one -one meetings with me, voting rights to determine themed months. Uh, Marshall patrons, for example, can actually demand episodes. Um, so if any of that is of interest to you, Please do consider uh, whether or not you would like to become a patron. Equally, a one-off tip can be made via Ko-fi. Um, and whatever support you're able to offer, I am massively grateful, as I'm sure you know. A particular shout-out to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, and Rachel Stark. My Commander patrons, John Haynes... 
Edgar Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meekin, Michael Guest and Graham Swidenbank. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cothlan, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, and Graham Goodwin. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.